What's up, everyone? With summer but a fading memory, and fall in full effect, I thought it was the perfect time to record a new episode of the Mishmash podcast. As a kid, winter and summer were my two favorite seasons, but as an adult, autumn has taken hold of the top spot. I love this time of year. It's still warm enough during the day where a hoodie will suffice, but the nights are growing crisper, the winds a little bit more blustery. Just the type of weather that's perfect for snuggling on the couch and watching a scary movie. I wish I could say that I've always been a lover of horror movies, but that would be disingenuous. The first recurring nightmare I remember having came from the film Troll, which absolutely terrified me as a three-year-old. It wasn't even the entire movie, just the scene early on where the kid drops her ball down the basement steps and goes down to retrieve it. It didn't help that the entrance to our basement at the time looked damn near identical, which just deepened my fear that something was waiting for me down there. Fun fact, the girl's name was Wendy Ann Potter, her brother and father? Yep, you guessed it. Harry Potter Jr. and Sr., way back in 1986. My mom watched horror movies all the time, and every now and then I would sneak a peek at whatever she had on. I don't ever recall her watching the classics, instead choosing what would be considered B-movies. I remember seeing things like The Wishmaster and other random picks from the local video store. Still, despite the prevalence of those movies being on in the house, I didn't grow up with them the way many kids from my generation did. I still haven't seen A Nightmare on Elm Street or Child's Play, and I didn't see Halloween, The Exorcist, Jaws, or Friday the 13th until well into adulthood. Most of my favorite dark or scary movies are ones that have flown well under the radar. Maybe that's a byproduct of my mom's own eclectic tastes, or maybe it stems more from my innate aversion to things that are ultra-popular or fad-focused. Regardless of the reason, by the time I hit adolescence, I began falling hard for any movie filled with darkness and tension. One of my favorite things to do as a teenager was to walk over to the UA theater on Knapp Street with my friends to watch whatever the latest scary flick was, and fortunately for me, there were plenty that came out while I was in high school. I could easily put together a list of my favorite 50 films, hell, maybe even a hundred of the most thrilling, but to stick with the spirit of the month, I decided to limit it to my top 31 dark films from the past 31 years. Everyone knows the all-time greats that came out in the 70s and 80s, but I'm hoping that at least a few of my favorites from more recent years might be new to some of you. Before I get to the list, though, I want to stress that I am not claiming that these are the best movies of all time. They're just the favorites of the ones I've seen. With free time and short supply, especially as a writer and a parent, the list of flicks I've yet to watch is almost as long as those that I have seen. I know there are some absolute gems like The Ring, or ones that are really out there like Human Centipede, that I haven't checked out but there are also others like a Serbian film that I flat out refuse to watch, for obvious reasons. I also had a few ties where there were either movies from the same director that I enjoyed equally, or just ones that I felt were very similar and warranted inhabiting the same slot. With all of that said, and without further ado, here are my 31 favorite dark movies of the last 31 years. At number 31, I have The Lighthouse. This is part of a trio of films directed by Robert Eggers, each with a different focus. His most recent release was The Northman, which, unfortunately, wasn't quite as awesome to me as The Lighthouse or another entry that I'll get to later on. The Lighthouse, though, is memorable as much for its strangeness as it is the acting of Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Both of them put on stellar performances, and you really feel this sense of mental degradation throughout the movie. Willem Dafoe, though, owns the highlights of the movie, including one unbelievable monologue and one unforgettable sequence involving a bodily function. Coming in at number 30, I have my first cop-out. My entry here is simply M. Night Shyamalan. I know that people would argue that The Sixth Sense is an all-time great movie, and it definitely is a phenomenal flick, 
but it's also one that I didn't see until nearly a decade after its release. I know, amazing that I managed to avoid having the twist ruined for me for that long, right? While most people place that at the top of their lists in terms of Shyamalan movies that they love, I liked it equally as much as Signs, The Village, and The Visit. Split and Old get honorable mentions here too, but the aforementioned quartet of movies have something additional that propels them ahead. I've always been terrified of anything dealing with alien abductions and realistic portrayals of extraterrestrials, versus movies taking place in space, and so Signs really freaked me out. Plus, I loved how he managed to tie everything together by the end, and that he was able to include so much foreshadowing without being blatant about it. I loved the conceit of the village, and so the fact that it wound up being a Twilight Zone-esque plot twist really appealed to me in a way that I think conversely irritated most other people. The visit was a pleasant surprise and a return to form, a movie that I think flew below most people's radars. There was some personal connections to elements of that movie that elevated it for me, but I stand by my assertion that it's among his better works. At 29 is Annihilation, an amalgam of science fiction, fantasy, and horror rife with thriller elements. I love movies that employ a slow burn approach, both in terms of revealing information and also accelerating the action or weirdness. The premise is simple. An alien presence has created a strange realm called the Shimmer. An army vet and biology professor loses her husband after he's deployed to investigate that area, and she is called upon to try to rescue him. What stood out to me, aside from the visuals, was the creativity employed with both the situations that are encountered and the strength of the psychological impact. An underrated, if predictable, movie with an ending that left the door open for a solid sequel. 28 features my all-time favorite Kevin Bacon performance. Stir of Echoes was definitely more of a creepy supernatural film than straight-up horror. A skeptical non-believer of the otherworldly, Bacon's character experiences a change in perspective after being placed into a hypnotic trance. I remember going to see this in the movie theater in the fall of 99, and can still picture several of the scenes pretty vividly. Having had an eerily similar experience myself, this one resonated on a level most of the other entries couldn't. Plus, it was based on a story by Richard Matheson, one of my favorite Twilight Zone writers. The 27th spot goes to an all-time great film that, again, leans more into the neo-noir psychological thriller realm. Seven took a fairly straightforward themed idea, the crimes based upon the supposed seven deadly sins, and managed to elevate the end product to an exalted level. There are a bunch of amazing and disturbing moments throughout the film, but if you've seen it, then you know the one that sticks with you most is a simple reiterated question at the movie's end. Number 26 features my all-time favorite Christopher Walken performances. While there are ultimately five films in the franchise, the first three prophecy movies are the ones that really impacted me and greatly influenced my writing. Walken's portrayal of the angel Gabriel is nothing short of stunning, and the threat of the apocalypse loomed large over all three of those films. The villain of the third movie, in fact, was an enormous influence on the primary antagonist from my Cosmogonia series. An awesome trio of movies that goes beyond the superficial good versus evil and Christian themes, they explore what it is to be human and the very nature of the soul were it to exist. Pretty philosophical stuff for some horror movies. Some of Walken's lines are just so incredibly creepy, but nothing was as unsettling as the scene where he bestows a secret upon one of the main characters. Identity sits at the quarter-century mark and represents one of the best mind games in all of cinema. The structure of the movie adds to its convolution as well as its amazing payoff at the end. All of the twists and turns are employed masterfully, they're not too difficult to follow, and they all add to the overall effect that the film is shooting for. The ending, too, stands out as an achievement unto itself and would likely make an all-time greats list in its own right. 
I was actually surprised by how much I enjoyed the movie at 24. At first, World War Z just seemed like any other over-the-top blockbuster spectacle of a zombie film. While there are the requisite big set-piece motions, it's the smaller opportunities of tension-building that give the film its staying power. I also assumed it would be one of those fight-to-survive-staying-put-until-help-comes types of plots, and was pleasantly surprised by the direction the movie actually took. I wound up feeling invested in the characters in a way I never really did before with a zombie film. With number 23, I went into watching it with pretty low expectations. Don't Breathe struck me as a pretty bland premise, one that was likely to lean heavily on jump scares. If I have one complaint about most of the lesser horror movies this side of the millennium, it's that they rely way too much on those cheap scares. Loud sonic flourishes coupled with either startling visuals or overly dramatic CGI. There's an art to crafting a genuinely terrifying, tension-building scene, and it's one that far too many modern directors fail to master. With all of that said, I was pleasantly surprised by how good this movie turned out to be, and that's thanks largely in part to an unexpected subplot. Suffice to say, it included one of the most appalling, jaw-droppingly disturbing scenes in any movie I've seen, and, as a result, I haven't been able to look at a turkey baster in quite the same way. From one flick with a shockingly unexpected subplot, to maybe the biggest of them all, I've got From Dusk Till Dawn in at the double deuce. Long before Cheech Marin gave arguably the single most memorable sales pitch in cinema history, the plot was already rife with discomforting action. From Quentin Tarantino's leering gaze at Juliette Lewis to George Clooney's violence lurking just beneath the surface, affably unhinged performance, the movie starts out as a seemingly straightforward, criminally-oriented action drama. Then, they cross the border into Mexico, and the insanity begins. A visit to one of the most iconic bars ever seen on the silver screen sees the plot veer violently off course. It almost feels like a brand new movie is beginning, but in its entirety, the movie works because of that left turn, not in spite of it. I'm double-tipping again at 21, only because of how inextricably linked these two movies are for me. I saw both Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer in 1997, towards the end of junior high school for one, and after the start of high school for the other. We all have those seminal moments in our childhoods where we really start to feel like we're growing up, and I think I connect these two movies with that year for that reason. Although they're not exactly the same from a plot perspective, I think the fact that their screenplays were both written by Kevin Williamson contributes a great deal to their similarities. He went on to create Dawson's Creek the following year, so the odds are, if you were a high schooler at that point, you were a fan of at least one of his works, if not all of them. Of the two, Scream is arguably the better film, if only for the way it both defies horror movie conventions while simultaneously relying upon them. I Know What You Did Last Summer felt like a smarter version of the typical teen horror slasher flick, and it's one of only two movies that had a moment that literally scared me out of my seat. No joke, at the very end of the movie, it looked like I was in a cartoon. Both cheeks cleared the cushion and I landed on my ass on the movie theater floor after releasing a bellowing roar of unexpected shock. The only other time that's happened was with the boat scene from Friday the 13th. Not two of my most shining moments there. Returning to the land of the undead for number 20, I have yet another Richard Matheson adaptation. This time, it's the 2007 version of I Am Legend. I loved the way flashbacks were used to fill in the plot as the action moved its way towards its inevitable conclusion. During the daylight sequences, I loved the post-apocalyptic vibe and the way that it really felt like the protagonist was the last person alive. Then, at night, there was a genuine sense of terror and dread building. No single scene captured that better than when Will Smith finds himself dangling from a cable, helplessly watching the sun go down. 
Each inch of shadow creeping along the asphalt brought with it a deepening pit of fear for his safety. The very real sense that the overarching situation was driving him insane only added to the tension. The world had ended, and yet he was involved in a race against time to salvage whatever remained. Really great writing and execution, even if the CGI was, at times, subpar for the era. My pick for number 19 is another one that I vividly remember seeing in the movie theater. Ravenous is still, to this day, one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen, which is part of what makes it one of my favorites. It's both campy and terrifying, inane and riveting. Its moments of levity leave you feeling unsettled and uncertain, but its horror pervades throughout. Robert Carlyle is amazing, and the supporting cast is elevated by the collective performances of Guy Pearce, David Arquette, Jeffrey Neil McDonough, and especially Jeffrey Jones. Plus, the music captures the essence of this quirky masterpiece, the soundtrack worthy of a listen even if you've never seen the film. We rejoin the new millennium with The Purge at number 18. This is another dystopian horror flick with an elegant premise. What if all crime was made legal for one night a year? It's surprisingly cerebral as a socio-psychological experiment, but also legitimately terrifying, at least from my purview. I'm looked at as the protector of my family, and so the thought of having to do so in an environment such as the setting for The Purge is, as you'd imagine, pretty discomforting. While there isn't any new cinematic ground being broken, nor any significant plot twists to speak of, the movie as a whole works both in theory and in practice. It's easy to write this off as pure fiction, but having experienced the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy firsthand, I'm not as quick to dismiss the darkness that lurks in the hearts of people. Under the right circumstances, as that first week following the storm demonstrated, even the most solid of people can show sides of themselves even they didn't know were there. And speaking of disasters in New York City, I've got Cloverfield coming in at number 17. Arguably the second greatest found footage film of all time, it was something to behold as a then-resident of the greatest metropolis on the planet. The fact that the view of the carnage came from ground level served to enhance the tension, and with so much uncertainty and obscurity early on, the director managed to maintain an impressive crescendoing of fear and dread. Despite some improbable plot choices, I loved the real feel of the story overall and appreciated all of the easter eggs scattered throughout, a worthy progenitor of the Cloververse for sure. Moving from one apocalyptic, alien-infested universe to another, I've got A Quiet Place in at number 16. It's easy to criticize Hollywood and lament the fact that there's nothing original anymore, but every so often, you find a diamond in among the coal. There is so much to love about A Quiet Place, its premise in particular. There are plenty of movies that have token elements of inclusivity, but having a hearing-impaired protagonist be tied so strongly to the central twist and core elements was so cool, and Millicent Simmons' performance was perfect. The same can be said for writer and director John Krasinski, but it was Emily Blunt who took things to another level. Everything from the Harvest Moon slow dance to the way she processed grief and, of course, to, you know, giving birth during the end of the world, it was all so refreshing to watch at a time when everything on the big screen was starting to feel stale. We've now passed the midway point and are nearly into the top 10. At 15, I have Saw, one of the goriest film franchises of all time, but also, at times, among the smartest. The motivation behind the antagonist's actions, at least throughout the first few flicks, makes it hard for the viewer to despise him outright. Obviously, you can't justify his tactics, but his intentions certainly aren't as overtly evil. The dark, filthy visuals in the first iteration are juxtaposed against some great flashbacks and an eerily ambient soundtrack. I didn't see the twist coming, and so that was definitely a huge oh-crap moment for me. The quality of the plots definitely declined pretty steadily, 
but even the second and third movies have their moments. Still, nothing beats our introduction into Jigsaw's world, and, of course, who doesn't like Creepy Billy on his cute little tricycle? From one oversaturated franchise to another, we have the original Paranormal Activity in at 14. I liked the mockumentary vibe that this one had, sort of a cross between a found footage flick and a feature film. It was written, produced, and directed by Oren Pelly, who went on to create a really cool show called The River. It lasted only one season, but it had the same vibe and horror elements. Definitely worth checking out if you've never seen it. Now, I love supernatural stuff. It's something that has always fascinated and inspired me, partly because of my own experiences, but also because there's something terrifying in the inherent plausibility of a lot of these movies. The suspension of disbelief is much easier to attain when the setting is eerily similar to real life, the darkness seemingly within arm's reach. I mean, who wouldn't be freaked out by the thought that it's not just their house that's haunted, but them? There were a lot of crazy coincidences and similarities between the characters and the plot and my own private life at the time, which I think served only to heighten the believability and thus my own personal terror. At the 13th spot, we have the film that made waking up in a hospital room during a zombie apocalypse cool. Nearly a decade before Rick Grimes became the face of such an activity, we had Jim. I like Cillian Murphy, and though I think his performances in the Christopher Nolan movies were great, I'd argue that his work here was his best. The bleakness of the setting was balanced perfectly by the bewilderment with which he approaches those initial waking moments. What I love about it is that it totally looks like the end of the world, but if you're paying careful enough attention, you'll realize that that's not really the case. And, as far as zombie movies go, this one gets an asterisk of sorts because no one is technically undead, they're just infected with a virus that creates violent, rabid reactions in people. However you categorize this movie though, it's a terrifying thrill ride, even discussing it two decades later. Dipping into the final dozen, I decided to do another director who also happens to be one of my favorite comedians. Jordan Peele came into the cinema scene like a supernova back in 2017. It's crazy to think that it's been only five years since that movie came out. It feels like he's been in the John Carpenter Wes Craven pantheon forever, but in reality, it's only a recent elevation. Now, for me, Regardless of genre, the hallmarks of a great movie are when it manages to introduce a multitude of things that are all resolved by the end, and when there are subtle moments of foreshadowing that all have payoffs by the time the credits roll. Get Out, Us, and Peel's most recent release, Nope, are all masterclasses in those elements. All three movies warrant multiple viewings simply because there was so much that was probably missed during the first and possibly even second ones. Clearly, he is best known for the social commentaries that are interwoven through his films, and I think those undeniably elevate them, but for me, they never really get in the way of the plot at large. With Get Out, it was obviously a critical element of the story, but even with Us, which was slightly less successful, and Nope, which was maybe a little bit more, you can watch the movies and not feel spoken down to. All three flicks are funny, scary, and smart, a rare trifecta in cinema these days. In the 11th spot is an all-time great, Arguably a modern classic, if only because of the impact it had at the time of its release. The Blair Witch Project came out during the internet's infancy at a time when word could spread quickly without any research being readily available. The movie's marketing served only to heighten its appeal, and it became the absolute must-see event of 1999. That's really saying something when you consider that The Matrix had just come out only a few months prior, and, even at year's end, people were still talking about and arguing over the veracity of the best found footage film of all time. Seriously, this was a 12-month stretch that saw the release of the first Star Wars movie in nearly 20 years, 
the first aforementioned Matrix movie, The Sixth Sense, the second Austin Powers movie, Big Daddy, The Mummy, American Pie, American Beauty, The Green Mile, Fight Club, Cruel Intentions, Office Space, and at least another dozen really well-known movies. And out of all of them, none was talked about more than The Blair Witch Project. Though it might have been a slow burn for some people, I absolutely loved the pacing and the payoff. The sequel sucked big time, but I caught some of the third movie, which actually seemed pretty interesting. Still, neither can hold a candle to the original. We finally cracked the top 10 with the best Robert Egger movie to date, and the film that put actress Anya Taylor-Joy on the map. Which was such a frightening movie because it never let up throughout its entire runtime. Watching it felt like descending into a dark cave as the poor family in the film slowly succumbed to the evil that had infested their lives. I love how it vacillated between the mundane and the supernatural in terms of the explanation for the tragedies that were befalling them before finally reaching its shocking conclusion. Black Philip all the way, baby. I even got the t-shirt that asks if I want to live deliciously. Hell yeah, I do. Such a great movie. In the ninth spot, we have what is arguably the funniest film of the bunch. Another 2015 release alongside the previous entry, Krampus was an unexpectedly incredible movie. There are scores of films that focus on the big guy's backstory, but none come even remotely close to achieving what director Michael Dougherty did here. Featuring my all-time favorite performances by both Adam Scott and David Koechner, you might be inclined to think that this would be a comedy-first film, but it is unquestionably a horror movie. The visuals and gradual descent into an apocalyptic hell help to counterbalance what amounts to a genuine glimpse into the lives of a fractured family. There are so many iconic baddies, and I jumped at the chance to collect their real-life replicas, including the massive, seven-foot, life-sized animatronic Krampus that greets my two smallest children each Krampus knocked. He sticks around for the duration of the Christmas season, just to make sure they're all staying in line. The movie's ending is another all-time great jaw-dropper, and one that engenders spirited debate for me even today. And speaking of my kids, I'm pretty confident that my number eight movie will never, ever, enter any list of favorites for them. The cinematic adaptation of Stephen King's It managed to do something I didn't think was possible. It surpassed Tim Curry's iconic performance of Pennywise, the dancing clown. Reflecting back on that television series, they managed to accomplish an incredible amount given the limitations at the time, with Curry's role likely scarring hundreds of thousands of children and haunting their nightmares for years to come. The movies combined actually have a longer runtime than the miniseries did, and, supposedly, the director wanted to release a special edition that had even more content. The endings of both left something to be desired, but, unfortunately, that was the main knock against Stephen King at the time. Still, even in spite of that, I felt like the movie version of It managed to be a lot scarier than the TV one, which, again, is saying something given what the latter managed to achieve. Moving on, the seventh spot belongs to Dark City, a movie I'd guess most of you either haven't seen, or maybe have never even heard of. I would consider it a cult classic of sorts, but I can't speak to how popular it really is. I love the darkness of the environment, as well as the psychological thriller aspects of a movie that felt very much like The Matrix, despite preceding it by a year. The gritty visuals are great, but it's the plot itself that makes this an all-time favorite for me. Plenty of sci-fi twists and turns that are as unnerving as they are engrossing. Another flick filled with a serpentine path through its plot is 10 Cloverfield Lane in at number 6. Easily the best Cloververse movie to date, this one is more psychological thriller than sci-fi blockbuster. 
We're introduced to our protagonist Michelle in the midst of her flight from what we can assume is an irreparable romantic relationship. After getting into an accident on a dark road, she awakens in a room chained to a bed with some significant injuries. Not long thereafter, John Goodman enters and informs her that the world is ending, and the only safe place is the underground bunker that his character Howard was kind enough to bring her to after encountering her on the road. What ensues is another masterclass in ratcheting up tension. The principal cast is incredibly small, and the settings are limited as well, which serves to build a sense of claustrophobia that doesn't let up until the climax. The mystery of Howard's true nature and intentions vacillates between utter certainty that he is out of his mind and a threat to Michelle, and an inclination to believe that he is, in fact, telling the truth about the apocalyptic conditions beyond his subterranean confines. Suffice to say, there are multiple payoffs that wrap the movie up perfectly, complete with their own mind-blowing twists. Watching it the first time felt like a mental tennis match where my positions on the veracity of things flip-flopped every few minutes. We're finally into the top five, and we enter it with the last of my double-dipper entries. With this one, I definitely feel like one film is superior, but it's difficult for me to separate them because they succeed for different reasons. Ari Aster's Hereditary is, for me, a perfect movie. From the opening moments, every single scene matters and is filled with not merely clues of what's to come, omens out in the open, but they're also rich with the history of what leads to the horrifying conclusion at the movie's end. This movie doesn't rely on cheap jump scares, gimmicks, CGI, or lore building to create a suffocating atmosphere of despair. It is a cauldron of emotion, a Pandora's box filled with every negative feeling percolating within its confines. Depression, angst, and anxiety commingle with dread, outright terror, and a descent into madness. The fate that has befallen this poor family is pitiable in its own right, but the reveal of how things came to be this way is far worse. The most shocking scene in the movie, too, is one that I sensed was coming before it happened and it still made me scream out loud when it occurred. Another solid example of the line blurring between the natural and supernatural realms, one where the darkness continues to creep just a little bit closer, absorbing each photon until it's consumed even the last of the light. That's where Midsommar, Aster's other masterwork, shines, quite literally, where Hereditary is drenched in darkness, soaked in shadow. Midsommar's horror occurs in broad daylight. You might not even notice it at first glance, but the juxtaposition of the horrific events against such a bright, cheerful backdrop renders them even more unsettling. Hereditary's plot was arguably tighter than Midsommar's, but both movies featured that gradual descent, matched by an equal if opposing increase in violence. At number 4, we have what might actually be the scariest of all the entries. Event Horizon wasn't the first stranded-in-space horror movie but it's easily the best, thanks in large part to a stellar performance by Sam Neill. This movie has a little bit of everything, and what seems at first glance to be a simple, straightforward horror mystery with a seemingly obvious presumption as to what befell the ship's crew, devolves into a supernatural nightmare of otherworldly proportions. The level of gore, too, is surprising, and as it turned out, it was supposed to have been even more viscerally violent, but the footage was lost. By today's standards, it might not seem that bad, but it's still pretty unnerving at times. My final three selections are all related to literature or writing, which should probably come as no surprise. I was torn about putting the film at number three even higher, but I decided against it because it's really more of a direct adaptation of its source material, whereas the top two movies are merely influenced by theirs. The bronze medal winner is The Mist, what I would argue is the greatest novella ever written. 
It's one of the few things that I've read more than two or three times, and its effect upon me never diminishes. From that first reading, though, I desperately wanted to see a visual adaptation of it. King's descriptions were vivid enough, but I felt like, somehow, seeing it on the big screen would make it even more terrifying. It took more than a quarter of a century to make it happen, but boy was it worth the wait. Now, while I appreciate certain creative licensing when it comes to adapting literary works, there are certain times when I want to see something exactly as I've envisioned it. There's just this weird sense of fulfillment that occurs when that happens. And so I held my breath when I stepped into the theater to watch this back in 2007. I was both relieved and pleasantly surprised to see that it was almost exactly how I was seeing it, and that the few alterations were all positive additions. As I mentioned earlier, King was often maligned for his unfulfilling conclusions, and the mist is typically included in lists of examples. Personally, I liked the open-endedness of it and fully expected the film to play out in exactly the same way. I won't ruin it, but suffice to say, the ending of the movie is drastically different than what was written in the novella. And it's, for me, the single most gut-wrenching conclusion to a film I've ever seen, completely unlike what was initially written. The movie itself does an excellent job of providing that familiar sense of claustrophobia, and the visuals are all exceptional, especially during the most major of beats from the novella. Still, it's the ending that continues to haunt me 15 years later. Our Silver Medalist is another literary adaptation, though this one is only loosely based upon its referenced work. The Ninth Gate is yet another movie from 1999, and this one features my favorite Johnny Depp performance. When I began this episode, I specifically described these as dark movies as opposed to scary or horror films, in part because of this movie. It has its startling moments as well as its bits of horror, but at its core, it's really a neo-noir supernatural thriller that succeeds because of its steady drip of revelations regarding its plot. Rather than playing all of its best cards up front, it withholds its most intriguing facets, dishing them out sporadically but at enough of a clip to maintain the pace through its 133-minute runtime. I'm a sucker for movies that make you think. I enjoy working for my entertainment sometimes, and this film does that. I've still yet to read The Club Dumas, upon which the original screenplay was based, but I have a feeling this is one instance where the movie will actually be better than its source material. And finally, we reach number one, the gold medal winner in The Mouth of Madness. As a writer, especially one who started out as an ardent reader of horror and science fiction books, there's not much more to want in a movie. First, you've got John Carpenter directing and scoring the film. What he accomplished in The Thing and Halloween, Even They Live, solidified his place on the Mount Rushmore of horror. But I would argue that what he did here is even better, solely from a writing standpoint. The plot of Halloween was pretty basic, but it was the music that elevated it. With The Thing, it was the practical effects and the visuals that took center stage. With In the Mouth of Madness, though, it's quite literally the writing that is central to the movie's success. You've got some Stephen King elements that go beyond the obvious connection with Sutter Kane and his works. Hobbes' end evokes every small town with a secret, but it reminded me the most of the iteration of King's fictional Castle Rock from Needful Things. The moments of horror, too, have a potent vibe to them that is reminiscent of It, the stand, or even desperation and under the dome. It's the Lovecraftian aura, though, that pervades and solidifies this as an incredible story in film. The threat of cosmic horror looms large throughout, and the terrifying trip to the end feels less like a slow descent into madness as other movies had, and more like having your sanity being violently hacked away until there's nothing left. 
So that wraps up my 31 favorite dark movies of the past 31 years. I hope you enjoyed the journey with me, and that there were at least a few familiar films on the list, as well as a few that you might now want to check out for the first time. I'd also love to hear about your own favorites, so please drop me a line on social media and let me know. And if you have any opinions or feedback about the movies that I've listed, feel free to share those too. And as always, thank you for listening, wherever and whenever you are.